0: Okay, we can have those um, verses in front of you. And as I said, we're going to look specifically at verses 5 and 6. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Now, a truism in any sort of research on uh, organisations, whether they're families Teams, um, offices, any groups of, of people, is that the the leaders or the heads of the group generally influence the values, the culture, the performance of that group. So if the leaders are negative sort of person, that infiltrates into the into the group. Sometimes you get a, a counter movement, but generally it affects them. If on a more simplistic level. Um, If they're hard-working, that comes through as well. Or if they use bad language, blaspheme, it almost gives carte blanche for other people to be the same. Well, the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount, and Beatitudes in particular, explain what those who are in the kingdom... Alike. It's uh, for believers, and our head is God, our it's the Lord Jesus Christ, our Saviour. He's our Lord, he dwells in our hearts, and the Beatitudes present life, they show life of what it is in the kingdom of God. It puts over a Christian value system um, it relates for all those who are believers. It's a message to believers, but it's a message also to unbelievers in the sense that, see what a new creature, a person who is born again, a person, person who has been saved, is like and should be like. The Beatitudes present life in the kingdom of God. It relates to what our ethical standards, how we behave, our attitude to money, how we behave to each other, our lifestyle, what what our ambitions are. Life in the kingdom of God, yes, it's a a, a fully a human life, but it's lived out under the divine rule. And just a few points before we we look at uh, verse 5, the first thing is that, which I've inferred really, is that. The Beatitudes is not a set of regulations to become a Christian, but a description of how a saved person should live and display all those characteristics. It's not that you you take one or two of them, but it's all of those characteristics. So that's the first thing to note. The second thing is they're not natural qualities. When we looked at them um, uh, the last time, It isn't a natural quality that people think that there's nothing to commend them, nothing to commend them to God. It's not a natural quality that people mourn over sin and they um, are upset before God that they have grieved him. Yes, they might do that to people who they're close to if they have upset and and, um, perhaps been disloyal to, but it's not in the natural person to, to be upset about their sin before God. So these are not natural qualities. And, um, and lastly, these uh, beatitudes are not random statements that j- Jesus has, has just come out with. They do logically follow each other. And we looked at that last time uh, in the first two: that a person who is uh, poor in spirit realizes that nothing they can do to save themselves, there's nothing to commend them before God, is that they inevitably look at themselves and they mourn over their sin, that they've hurt their Saviour, they've hurt the one they love. And then it follows then that, because they're like that, is that they realise that they have no rights before God. They've nothing to, to claim that that should happen to me. Why has that happened to me? As we'll see later on, they become meek And then, as a result of that and their sin, they they had that urgent desire (coughs) to become more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ, more and more holy, more and more righteous. So, they're just a few points, but let us go straight in to verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Well, I've put this, uh, this little section in, into three parts. First of all, what meekness isn't? I did a crossword this week, uh, and strangely enough, the, um, the, the clue was weak and submissive. Four letters, and I had the fourth letter, which was K. And I thought, I know what this is going to be. It's going to be meek. And it was meek. But that's not what meekness is. Being meek isn't being spineless. You know, it isn't um, anything for a quiet life. You know, oh, no, I'm going to protest at that. It's, it's going to get people upset. And uh, we, we, we may well be familiar with that uh, famous statement, which was uh, brought up a, a bit during the, um, the time of the Nazi era, that Burke made... Edmund Burke, the political writer, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is that good men do nothing. So it's not being spineless. It's not being timid. It's not, as they say, never saying boo to a goose. I've never quite understood that expression. Why would you want to say boo to a goose? But it doesn't mean being timid and never wanting to speak up or say anything and it doesn't mean just being nice not I'm not running down niceness whatever it means but it isn't just being nice when we think of that word that general word we tend to think of people who are affable they're easygoing pleasant you know um some people are naturally like that aren't they i mean they they are You know, you've met lots and lots of people, and some people get up your nose and are obstructive. And if they don't like something in the restaurant, they're quick to, you know, complain or whatever. And there's some people who would never do anything like that, they're just nice. And that's a natural quality, and it's, you know, not running it down. But as we said earlier, the meekness and all these uh, things that the Beatitude says, they're not natural qualities. Meekness. Is also not a natural quality. Only those who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, who are saved, can be truly meek. It's a fruit of the Spirit, and it's possessed by Christians alone. So that's what it's not. And I thought the next section we'd look at is to give a few illustrations of people in the Bible who were meek. And there's there's lots of them. And the first one that uh, sprung to mind was Abraham if you if i put the verse up there on the yes i have genesis 13 you don't need to look at it but basically it was where um abraham and his nephew lot left together and um they were getting the the followers of both of them were getting on each other's nerves and there were squabbles and petty arguments and they they decided or abraham decided we would better separate here and it, really abraham was 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 the uncle. He had all the money, he had all the possessions, he had all the authority. He could have said well I'm having that land, you have the rest. But he gave Lot the choice. He didn't insist on his own rights. As it happened Lot made a bad choice but he chose what, what was the most fertile and what seemed to be the most profitable land. And, but Abraham gave him the first choice. He didn't insist on his own rights. He could have done. Uh, Moses um, in, in Numbers, uh, uh, chapter 12, verse 3, Moses was actually describing himself as the, the most meek person on the face of the earth. That's quite a claim, isn't it? But if you look at Moses' life, that was no wrong boast. That was a correct um, summary of what God had made him into being. I mean... What a time he had with those people of Israel. What a group of rebellious, whinging and stubborn stubborn people the Israelites were. They were never happy. They hadn't gone one step past the Red Sea. And they were moaning. And Moses constantly, through those years, had to discern that fine line between defending God's honour and his own. And throughout it, he prayed for them. In fact, Matthew Henry, um, in his commentary, says about Moses, he was as bold as a lion in the cause of God, but mild as a lamb in his own. So that was a feature, a characteristic of somebody who's meek. Well, there's many other people. David, taking his relationship with Saul. Job, Jeremiah, Stephen, Paul, and we're going to see many exa- uh, references about Paul's meekness um, later on. And, of course, our Saviour. Jesus, in Matthew eleven twenty nine, says, For I am meek, the new version tends to use the word gentle. They seem to re- replace the word meek with gentle, but I think it loses something by saying that. For I am meek and lowly in heart. And it's being pointed out that it's the only one of Jesus' personal qualities that he particularly placards, that he particularly draws attention to. So that makes it especially significant, doesn't it? Being meek. And let us just turn to um, verses that really, two sets of verses that sum up Jesus' meekness. First of all, Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2, just read verses 5, 6, and 7. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And part of it was meekness, who being in the form <coughs> of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant coming in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death even the death of the cross. He didn't consider uninterrupted enjoyment of glory his right. He laid it aside, didn't he? As it says in those verses, he accepted all the limitations of being on this earth, surrounded by sin in all its forms. And if we turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, this, he was in a position to, to say this. From Peter chapter 2, verses 21 to 24. I think this one. Yeah. Who committed no sin nor was deceit found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, did not threaten. But committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sin, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. So there was no fury, Jesus. When he was personally attacked, as we recorded in the Gospels, he obviously responded with sort of a courteous and manly logic or with care or with love and always with prayer that was meekness so what permeates all those examples well if you were to describe it as it controlled strength it isn't being supine it isn't being spineless it was controlled strength Abraham had every right to choose first Moses had every right to pack it in Tell him to get on with it. Jesus had every right to censure his, his disciples, the Pharisees, but they did not. So they're looking at the examples then. So, so what is meekness? What are the character, what's the characteristic of a meek person do we find from that? Well, first of all, a meek person commits his cause to God. He removes himself or herself from the picture and is altogether and is solely concerned with God's glory. Scripture talks about it meaning dying to self. Like Paul in uh, 2 Timothy 1 verse 12, after all his imprisonments, beatings and backbitings that he suffered, he committed it all to God. He didn't roll up his sleeves and thought, I'll sort them out. He committed it all to God, the sovereign God. So he commits his cause to God. He didn't rail against the night or be resentful or try and get his own back. So that's one aspect of meekness. The second one, a meek person accepts criticism and personal injury without resentment. And this is such a challenge to us, isn't it? Again, Paul, again in 2 Corinthians, says we can say it in our prayers, he sees when, when people opposed him, that he, he prayed for them he was cons- when people criticised him. We, see, we can say it in our own prayers, can't we? That, um, and we, we, we do, don't we? We're miserable sinners. But if any of you come up and tell it to us that you're a miserable sinner... We don't take that very well, do we? (coughs) Being meek in this sense, then, means that we've got to have a teachable spirit. Um, In James, it says that we must receive God's word with meekness. We shouldn't, when we listen to God's word, let it fly over us and not affect us. We shouldn't think, "Oh, oh, that's definitely for that person in there that that word oh that's a good word for them isn't it but we have a teachable spirit and we we let the the gaze of God's word shine on our our hearts and see the sin in it and we seek through the power of the Holy Spirit to be changed in that way so it accepts criticism and personal injury without resentment meekness also bears patiently the unfaithfulness of friends. Uh, We did this recently in our Bible study. Paul's friends had failed him badly. But what was his response? His response was, may it not be held against them. Paul didn't evidence any sign of resentment. And when people are let us down or unfaithful, we have to be honest, don't we? It's very hard to not feel aggrieved or bitter. The letters respond in a meek way like Paul did. May it not be held against them. <clears throat> a meek person also deals gently with the lost again. Paul, in his letter to Timothy, um, says that we should be gentle with, with those who are lost. We should be gracious We should be patient, we should be humble and we should share the gospel, give the reason for the hope that's within us and I found this particularly challenging recently because somebody who was quite close to me um, after we'd had a a discussion about the Christian faith and being a Christian and he turned around to me and said, I always thought you were intelligent. I didn't think you were such an idiot. Believe in that. And I felt myself getting, you know, certainly not acting meekly. That's not how Paul responded in meekness. That's not how the Lord Jesus responded. Gentleness, patience, humility, and exp- giving account of your, of your belief, sharing the gospel. So deals gently with the lost. Also deals gently, a meek person deals gently with the failures of others. When we come across people who have failed, not split up from their husbands or wives or the kids are in trouble or anything like that, a meek person doesn't sneer. Doesn't look down on their nose at them and think, oh know, oh, I could see that coming. Or they don't show... False sympathy. Oh, isn't it terrible, that, isn't it? Oh, we'll have to pray for them, won't we? And they don't really mean it. Or they don't become judgmental, censorious, the word is often used. We should, as again we've advised by Paul in the word, we should restore them meekly. Ensure as well that we're not tempted as well. We should deal meekly, gently with the failures of others. And I said to you before that there's a logic, logical progression in the Beatitudes, and you see it specifically, particularly here, really, because if you realise that we have nothing to commend ourselves before God, if we mourn over our sin, realise our great sin before God, how could you be censorious and Judgmental or sneering of the failures of others—they follow on, don't they? Well, there's a promise attached to this, and before we go on to the the, the, the next verse, it says, doesn't it? "Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth." Well, that has two meanings. It has a present and a future one. It certainly doesn't have, as some people have interpreted, um, a. a that it means a material benefit. There's no place for the prosperity gospel. Um, it's a, a, a blasphemous, totally erroneous view of scripture. They shall inherit the earth. It means we have everything. We have all spiritual blessings. We're in Christ, it says, doesn't it, 1 Corinthians, you are Christ's and Christ is God's. We have everything. We have inherited that already, but has a future meaning, not yet fulfilled. Uh, and we can rejoice in its certainty. Peter says, according to God's promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So that's the promise for meekness. So that's meekness. But let's move on to the next, the next one, which we're going to look at. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Now, a lot of writers quite uh, on this verse do, do make the the point that this notion of hunger and thirst is, is not something that uh, people in, in, in Western society, whether it's in Holland or the UK, really experiences it. If we feel hungry, or if we feel thirsty, we, we go to the shop, or we open the fridge, and, you know, it's, we don't really experience it. But the, the place that Jesus was talking about, and of the time, it was not uncommon, where they depended on the rain, they depended on a good crop, and they literally didn't know where their next meal and sustenance was coming from. And consequently, their, their daily life was taken up with this uh, pangs of hunger and this thirst and, and seeing it um, and, and looking for it to be satisfied. They can't rest at night, they can't sleep, they can't settle, they can't do other things until this hunger and this thirst is met. If we can understand that um, or even if we've not been through that ourselves, it's completely dominating and that's why um, this expression of hunger and thirst for righteousness really sums up what a Christian should be like, they should have this all-consuming desire, not for food and drink, but for righteousness. Now, I'm drawing a little bit on uh, what Peter said last week when he talked about righteousness, because there are two there are two particular meanings of righteousness, really. There's the, what's called the imputed righteousness, and this means that we're, when we become believers, as we become believers, we're reckoned to be righteous. It's imputed to us. Even though we don't naturally, don't have it of ourselves, we we still sin. When we become believers, it is given by Christ. And indeed, it's the basis of our acceptance by Christ. So, there's a a similarity between that sense of righteousness and being justified by God. sometimes used in Scripture interchangeably righteousness and justification. But it's, it's not that righteousness that's being talked about here, although that's absolutely crucial. This sermon was being addressed to people um, primarily, it says, the disciples who already had that righteousness imputed to them. They already had that. But the other type is what's um, often described as imparted, imparted righteousness. This is that Jesus is living in us. And he's helping us become more and more righteous. So first of all, we must come to Jesus. God will make us holy. He'll impute his righteousness to us through Jesus, through his Holy Spirit. But then we should want urgently, it should dominate all our energies, it should be all-consuming, to become more and more righteous. Now what do we mean righteous. Well, it it used to be in in the olden days, um, the word sometimes was called right wiseness. It talked about a right fit of, of wanting what is right, a right fit for you. It's what I am supposed to be like, what I was created to be. A sense of well-being. It's what I've been created like. We we, we know it sometimes. I the thought of, um, you know, when we get, we're at a job and we just think, uh, or oh, we go on a, co- we go a, take a course, a degree or something, and it's just right. We think, that's just me. That's just right. That's just what... I, um suits me. I remember when I first became a Christian. And I may well have shared this before, um, but when you, you know when you get as old as me, you tend to repeat yourself. And uh, but when I uh, was a Christian, before I was a Christian, I went to uh, to university. I teamed up with a, a group of lads who were on the same floor in the hall of residence as me, and they were, they were you know, decent lads, but they um, they worked hard. I think they all got first. And um, but then they do a bit of work in the evening. and go off to the pub and drag me along. And I was never really that that happy about. That. But you know, you we know, then used to listen to to sort of music and things like that. But when I became a Christian, I started mixing with people who were Christians, and I felt at home with them. It was the right fit. They talked now about things that I wanted to hear about and I wanted to learn about. And now that desire to uh, to mix with the others and. Uh, That's what it means, being righteous. It's it's that right fit. Now, of course, when we're saved, there's always a remnant of sin of us, and that remains with us, doesn't it? But Jesus didn't save us just to take away the guilt of our sin. He saved us, as uh, Pete said last week, to save us from the power of sin. And when Jesus saved us, he had no intention to leave in us as he found us, he wanted us to grow in righteousness, he wanted to be more like the lord jesus christ now if as Christians we, we I suppose if we were to have a label on us, it would be a work in progress for all you christians you 're a work in progress now what this is by, uh, this is saying is that we should be a work in progress now. When you go along the, the motorway and um, you see, you know, signs for roadworks and, you know, sometimes you see that thing, you know, uh, uh, roadworks work in progress. And we've all seen it, haven't we? You pass by all the cones and you see the diggers and the steamrollers and things like that and there's nothing happening. And you think, you know, I've waited hours here through this traffic. There's nothing going on. Where's, where are they all? There's no working. Are we, as Christians, like that? Are we doing doing nothing? Are we not showing that hunger and thirst for righteousness? Or are we a hive of activity and the work is is moving apace? And it's not just the trappings, like the steamrollers and the diggers and the cones, the trappings that things are, are going on, you know, going to church, Occasionally reading the Bible, going to prayer, meeting, to prayer etc. But nothing really going on, or is there a hive of activity? Now, um, our brother um, Keith lent me a very helpful book. I've had it for a while, but it's been very helpful on the uh, beatitudes by Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones, and he devotes a chap, well, two chapters actually, to this particular beatitude. And he says, folks, one chapter on it, to say that it's, this beatitude is one of the most accurate tests of our spirituality. He titles the chapter Spiritual Appetite. He says that if people hunger and thirst, in a way, it, it has positive aspects about it. It shows, first of all, that they're alive. Because when you die... You don't, you're not waiting for your next meal, are you? It shows that you're alive. It's a sign of life. And if you're hungry and thirst, it's also a measure of your health, isn't it? You go to the doctors and, uh, and one of the, sometimes one of the questions that they ask you is uh, how are you sleeping and how are you eating? It's a sign of your health. Your doctors or your mothers, they always ask you that, don't you? Are you eating well? You no, know, It's a sign of your health. Well, the natural unsaved person, as we said before, they don't hunger and thirst after righteousness. They're empty. They're empty. They're without God. But they don't have that sense of being hungry or being thirsty. Now, as believers, don't forget, this is um, a character assessment um, a, a statement of what a, a Christian should be like. It's not what you do to become a Christian. It's, you're a Christian. This is what you should be like. A Christian or a believer controlled by that desire, that urgent desire, that hunger, that thirst will go to places where they can be satisfied. They won't go to places that were not satisfied. I mean, if, you're, if you feel hungry and thirsty... And you've, got, and you've got some money. Well, you'll go to a shop, won't you, and buy something. You won't suddenly decide to go to the pictures and spend all your money on the pictures or go to a football match or something like that. You know, you, you have a hunger and a thirst. It needs to be met. Now, many Christians are like that. They're not going, feeding themselves. They're going to these places which have no benefit Whatsoever. So to say that they should never go to these things, but that's, a, that's, what, that's what preoccupies them. Now, a believer controlled by these desires will go to the places where they can be satisfied. They will go, they will study God's word. They want to know more about what it is to be righteous and how I can be righteous, how I can order my life properly. They will spend time, as we were reminded this morning, in prayer. Praying to God, having the mind of God on things. They want to meet with other Christians and talk about um, how they can satisfy that hunger and thirst for righteousness. How How do you do it? What helps you in your Christian life? They will look to God and look to God's word to help them to overcome sin, struggles and difficulties. These are the things that will preoccupy them. They'll seek to have a godly discipline in their lives of regular reading God's Word and prayer and regular self-examination. It's the only way, isn't it, for spiritual maturity. A flabby Christian life will only produce, at best, flabby Christians. Let me just quote Robert Murray McShane, who used to say, Lord, make me holy as it is possible for a redeemed Sinner, to be. Are we doing those things? Are we going to those places? Are we doing those things that show we have that hunger and thirst? Do we have that desire? And it's it's so true, isn't it, that this this being hungry and thirsting for righteousness is that we seek it. We seek to satisfy ourselves with it. But as we we read more of God's word, as we seek to become more and more holy, we realize our greater sin, and our hunger increases. Um, I think John Blanchard, in one on his, one of his books on um, the Beatitudes, says calls his chapter "The Unsatisfied Satisfaction," and that's what it's about, isn't it? It's like the example of the the high jumper in in the Olympics. You know, he does he he, he, he does a, um, a a big jump, high jump, that's what it's called, a high jump, and um, he doesn't just sit back and think, oh, that's good enough for me. Well, get me tracksuit on, going back home, that'll do me. Have a rest, have a kip. He gets, goes for higher, tells him to put it up higher. And if he does that, he goes up higher. It's a feature of a believer who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. Is that they have this unquenchable desire to love the Lord Jesus Christ more, to be more like him, it utterly rules their life well the promise talk about the promise in verse six that it, uh, verse five that they shall inherit the earth what's the promise here? for they shall be filled and will finish by. Reading, if you can turn to Revelation chapter 7, verse 16, which shows what this particular verse means. So, Revelation chapter 7 and verse 16. Well, I'll read the one before, uh, verse 15. Therefore they are before the throne of God to serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger any more nor thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters, And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Amen. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you. Thy dear Son, we thank you, Lord. For his death, for his perfect obedience on this earth, for his resurrection, that it was all for us. Lord, we know the truth that it's not die, save us, just to leave us as we are, or leave us floundering, wandering. We thank you, Lord, for your guidance in Scripture, for what we should be like. But Lord, especially, that the power that raised the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead works in us to, so that we're not just following an example, but through thy Holy Spirit, you were given us the desire and the will and the strength to achieve it as much as you would wish to. We pray, Lord, as we consider these verses, we know that we do not measure up to it. Lord, that we are not, in a sense, the right fit. That, Lord, that our hearts do, as the hymn says, go after um, things that of folly, of uh, no eternal value, and spend too much energy on them. Forgive us for that. We ask now, Lord, that you would be with us. Help us, Lord, in our Christian lives. Discipline us to be more like thy dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.